Hi, I'm Michaela McGuirk-Scalamo and you're listening to City Road. The 2022 Festival of Urbanism has provided us with some fantastic panel discussions on the threats and opportunities facing our cities. This episode engages critically with notions of the smart city. Will the future city be dictated by techno-capitalist firms or are smart and socially accountable forms of urban governance still possible? This panel includes Assistant Professor of New Media and Digital Culture at the University of Amsterdam, Dr. Niels van Dorn, Urban Strategist and Author, Dr. Sarah Barnes, Associate Executive Director of Smart Places at Transport for New South Wales, Rory Brown, and Senior Lecturer of Digital Cultures at the University of Sydney, Dr. Justine Humphrey. I'll let our chairperson, the Senior Lecturer at the Sydney School of Architecture, Design and Planning, Sophia Molson, start us off. But before we begin our proceedings, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built, and as we share our knowledge, teaching, learning, and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. And whenever we're talking about cities, I think this is something really important to acknowledge. So digital platforms increasingly mediate our experiences of the urban, reconfiguring our relations with governance and others in different ways, some of which we may not even be aware of. So platform urbanism is therefore an important area for planners, policymakers, and indeed anyone interested in the city to be thinking about. So let us turn to our first speaker, Sarah Barnes, who will be taking us through some of the key uh, ideas and thinking around platform urbanism and what we actually mean by this. So over to you, Sarah. Thanks very much. It's great to be here today. Um, I too would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation as the land of which I speak and to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Um, I love to learn about country-centred stories and city-making wherever I go. Um, For, I guess, the last 15 years now, I've been really interested in this interface between um, digital technologies um, and how we interface with the different kinds of screen and environments, multi-sensory spaces that we um, navigate through via technologies in cities. Um, it's, been a long, it's been a long-term journey and fascination for me. Uh, around about, I guess, 2013, I, I then, um, after working for a number of years at the ABC um, and other organisations looking at R&D projects for future technology, I started to think about this interface between technology and cities in everyday life. And it was around 2013 that I started to think in terms of platform urbanism. This, this kind of word popped into my head. It was like, we are actually going to become... Um, urban through our platform interactions. And I thought this would have kind of quite fundamental significance for the future of cities, uh, for the way in which we would navigate cities, but also the infrastructural design of cities. And I guess the ways in which even planners and engineers and designers would actually come to be able to do their work and know about cities. Um, So this work of platform urbanism has been something of a fascination now for, yeah, I guess we're coming up to 10 years now. I wanted to just show these photos, these scenes. These are uh, scenes from urban life. Here we are in the train. Um, Here we are outside the opera house. I admit this is actually a scene from Pokemon Go when it took off around Sydney, but still, it does kind of feel like when you're walking around spaces these days, this is what you see. Um, Here's another scene, a very familiar scene. I'm sure we've all done something like this um, when we're visiting um, or going out at night, whether or not there's projections on buildings. Um, I think the things that, you know, fascinate me about these images and these scenes is that while that you, we definitely see a focus on the mobile phone, right? The mobile phone's a key thing here. There's lots of different kinds of activities that everyone is engaging with. Okay, this is a multiplayer game, but perhaps we're actually looking at people navigating the streets. People here on, this, on the train could be doing any number of things. They might be reading a book even. They might be, okay, scrolling Facebook or Instagram or, or TikTok or what have you. But I guess the key thing for me is that 
how we inter interact via these devices is, is multi-sensory and can mean all kinds of things. So I didn't really think necessarily in terms of like mobile phone urbanism, for example, right? I thought about it in terms of platform urbanism because I guess embedded in these devices are lots and lots of technologies, but also lots of interface strategies, engagement strategies, and business strategies. It was around the time that I was thinking about this kind of concept of platform urbanism that we saw a bunch of books come out that started to really tease out what the implications were of the platform, not necessarily like apps or social media or even mobile devices or Internet of Things, but actually like the platform as this, as this unit of analysis. So some business strategists thought about it in terms of the platform revolution, the way platform strategy was actually reimagining business. Um, the thing about platforms being that you could actually encourage people to generate value on your platform without you doing that work. Um, so there's this kind of different way of thinking about business strategy here. At the same time, there's also this negative response, this really critical response, looking at the way that platforms embed new kinds of data surveillance and data capture within platforms. And this has really come to light, I think, more um, obviously in the last sort of five years since the tech clash has arisen. Um, really obvious that, I guess, many platforms are there to really um, engineer sociality and interaction in ways that may not necessarily be good for us society. So it was these kinds of background ideas that really led me to, um, to write a book on the topic of platform urbanism. And this is, this is my book, Platform Urbanism, which was really thinking about the, the mode of strategy around platform design and platform engagement as actually urban strategy. In a sense, the way we look at these images you know, the interfaces between the digital and urban are so blurred now. So what are the ways that platform strategy is actually changing the experience of spaces, their design, and also the way that um, governance bodies um, can manage and support the making of good places? So I'm just sort of really offering some high-level thoughts here before I know we're going to hear from a wonderful um, panel of speakers about some really, like, some great examples and domains that platforms are impacting. But just some reflections that I would offer here, um, which I do make in my book, uh, that I think about platforms as really highly engineered digital spaces of interaction and value creation. For me, what's essential about the platform is that for anyone to use your platform, they're creating their own value there. So we don't necessarily take on a platform to implement another company's technology strategy or even a government's technology strategy. We use platform because they're meaningful and create value for us, whether we're you know, a rider in an Uber or a driver of an Uber. Um, we're, we're not forced to to implement someone else's technology strategy. I think that's a really important distinction between um, platform strategy and other kinds of technology strategy. I see platforms as very participatory, potentially. Um, they're always spaces of open innovation. People create their own value. They create all kinds of things on platforms. But unfortunately, I think the form that we've seen in recent years um, shows us that the value generated on platforms is not shared e equally. And we've seen that with the rise of big data in particular, where the data value that's generated from platforms is harvested and used to generate new kinds of AI applications through machine learning and so forth, which makes a platform more sticky to its users, um, but necess doesn't necessarily mean that value is being shared. I think about platform urbanism in the sense that we're all platform urbanists. We're all generating the data. We're all um, implementing these kinds of platform strategies wherever we go. Um, how we interface with platforms, the choices that we're all making, um, shapes how we experience and move through urban spaces and settings. Um, a cr really critical point here, and I guess I would, I would conclude on these points, is that I see these questions around the design, um, interface design, business strategy, but also governance as really increasingly critical to the management of cities and to the management of places. The kinds of data that is being generated through platform ecosystems is really critical to the work of planners, to the work of governments, in knowing what is happening in a place at any one time. So 
data partnerships that can support improved kind of relationship between platform ecosystems is increasingly the stuff of urban planning and the stuff of urban governance. So we see here in these ways in which, I guess, for me, platform urbanism affects the everyday in a really simple way that we move about the city, but is really fundamental also to the design and governance of future cities. And I think I'll conclude on that point. Thank you, Sarah, for kicking us off there on, I think, what is an excellent introduction to platform urbanism. And next, we will turn to Niels, who is actually able to join us because of the magic of platforms today. Um, so I will switch over to you, Niels. So, um, hi, everyone. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Um, I'd like to use the time I have to uh, talk to you about and to think about platform urbanism by talking about um, one example of tech innovation and, and disruption, if you will, and I'm using quotation marks for a reason, as you'll see, uh, that has impacted cities over the past two years. And that's namely uh, rapid delivery uh, services, also called instant delivery or uh, flash delivery, quick commerce. And I want to uh, talk about these rapid delivery uh, platforms uh, in the Amsterdam context and think about it mainly in, in terms of like, how can we not think about it in terms of disruption? Disruption is also one uh, word that was used in the description uh, of this panel. So I'd like to kind of problematize this. So first, a little bit about these, these, this kind of the quick rise and then not yet fall, but definitely some problems they're running into of these rapid delivery services. Um, so it's really kind of a, a, a thing of, that came up in the, during the pandemic. So in 2020, 21, we really saw all of a sudden this, this huge peak in customer demand for delivery, and especially also then with a lot of the, the, the branding that came into it, uh, a lot of um, quick delivery. So there was a huge demand. There was also a huge labor supply, due, especially because of a lot of service workers losing their jobs needed some other uh, form of income. Uh, and of course, in this uh, time, there was still uh, low interest rates, so an abundance of funding. So all we saw, especially in Europe, but also in other continents, we saw this incredible rise of these uh, quick and rapid delivery uh, platforms, such as Gorillas, Getier, which I'll talk about in a moment in the in Amsterdam case. Um, and then all of a sudden, they were everywhere. And everybody was using them because the customers were getting incredible discounts uh, because of the, all the venture capital that was that these companies were burning. Now, this was the last, so to say, the two pandemic years. But now, since 2022 and ongoing, we see kind of a new reality for these delivery platforms. Uh, this is, I would call it a post-pandemic reality of decreasing demand because people are, are again, like the, the lockdowns are over, people are moving outside, doing groceries again, but also because of inflation, people are spending less. Uh, there's decreased funding because interest rates are, are uh, being hiked. Um, so these companies cannot really use uh, or give discounts to, to customers that much anymore. And, and this is the thing I really mainly want to talk about, uh, we are seeing in, in cities like Amsterdam, but also in Paris and Berlin, we are seeing uh, uh, regulation coming up. Uh, now, the thing is with this regulation that is in Amsterdam, it happened in a very haphazard and kind of knee-jerk manner. And it was very much focused on this idea of a public nuisance. So a lot of neighborhood neighbors complaining about these uh, abundance of, of bikes and, and, uh, and other types of vehicles that were standing in, in their neighborhood. But there was also a very racialized uh, discourse, I want to add, because people were complaining about these men, these delivery workers, mostly migrant men, who were ostensibly smoking weed and causing trouble in, in, you know, in, their, in their streets or on their square. Um, so whereas, for instance, in Berlin, we saw a very different discourse that where people were demanding regulation, which was very much focused on working conditions of these riders. And uh, these delivery workers, for instance, for Gorillas, the company Gorillas, were protesting their working uh, for better working conditions. In Amsterdam, those protests weren't there, and we the, the, the discourse was very much focused on the, you know, the livability of these cities, and it was a very um, racialized discourse again. So um, suddenly, these companies were told to leave. They had to all of a sudden close their um, dark stores. So dark stores are uh, urban um, um, small warehouses where they store their, their groceries. And all of a sudden, even though they could previously operate in, uh, in city centers, they were told to pack up and leave for, uh, for the, the outskirts of the city. Now, 
Getir, which is one example, is a Turkish uh, rapid delivery company, heavily funded uh, also by, by the likes of SoftBank, etc. Um, they first tried to uh, appeal this decision in, uh, in court, but when a judge ruled in, in favor of the municipality, Getir had to, had to get creative. So what they did, interestingly enough, they went from dark store, which you know, nobody could enter, to what they, they created, art stores what they called art stores. They also created supermarkets. So they reorganized uh, uh, their their dark store so that people could actually enter and pay. Now, mind you, <laughs> this hard, there's hardly any customers that actually go in and use Get Here because they're relatively higher priced than you know, a local supermarket. But this is how they try to get around or st and are still trying to get around uh, these, uh, these new regulations, which again, were very sudden and were kind of overwrought because they didn't know how to deal uh, with this this new disruption again uh, that was caused by a dark store. Now this is a statement by by Getty, which I think is really kind of interesting, um, and which also begins to allow us to question this notion of like kind of techno uh, techno capitalist firms dictating the future of the city or a one way street or a matter of just kind of technological disruption uh, um, th that we would see with these this what we know consider to be platform urbanism so this so the get here said by offering and they, this is a statement in relation to uh, their opening of these art stores by offering local artists space to exhibit their work get here provides a social contribution while simultaneously enhancing the public appearance of these buildings get here is here to stay and will continue to learn and innovate to meet the wishes of stakeholders and to embed itself in the city. So what I find really interesting here is indeed how do these platform companies, these tech companies, seek to embed themselves into the city? Now, then the question becomes, and this, these are the key questions also in relation to the description for this panel, is disruption the key dynamic of platform urbanism? And are techno-capitalist firms really dictating the future of the city? I'd say that disruption is, is the notion of disruption here is not just problematic uh, in a descriptive sense, meaning this is really not how things work in practice, but also in a normative sense, because it focuses on the inscrutable and unaccountable uh, nature of tech uh, tech platforms, kind of this black box, uh, that's also the problem when you use a black box metaphor, and on a unilateral dynamic, uh, just basically dictating, uh, you know, private firms dictating public uh, and, and the common good, and it focuses on a private-public dichotomy. And this, and what is so problematic, I think, about this, when we want to critically think about platform urbanism and what these, what impact these companies have, these delivery, rapid delivery firms, is that it lets city governments off the hook, right? So it's not just techno-capitalist firms that dictate what uh, cities, uh, future cities will look, feel, and function like. The process is, I would add, I would argue, much more negotiated, much more political which I guess we tend to forget that element, and much more historically layered. We should not forget that cities are entrepreneurial, and especially Amsterdam wants to be a key startup city. It has this whole, um, it has several different programs in which it wants to, it basically wants to operate as an incubator and a facilitator of tech firms. So like many other cities though, it lacks expertise and it lacks capital. And this became especially uh, um, uh, prevalent during the pandemic in, with respect to logistics and delivery of particular goods and services. So platform companies are potentially really interesting partners as well. They offer new opportunities, but also come with new challenges. And as we've seen with this short uh, example with rapid delivery services in Amsterdam, only when they produce so-called negative externalities do mun municipalities suddenly jump into action and offer with these hap haphazard regulatory uh, initiatives, which is then contested, but, and this is also interesting or part of the point, it also is generative of new initiatives that reorganize urban space. Because first of all, first these uh, uh, premises were vacant, then they became dark stores, then they become art stores, which then changes the discourse and changes also the different groups of stakeholders and, and changes how these neighborhoods uh, can function and who profits of it or who benefits from it and who is uh, uh, who is left out so then finally with our team our platform labor uh, team we're thinking we would like to 
or we prefer to think about these processes of platform urbanism in terms of actually existing platformization. So I want to uh, final, finally end here with a couple of thoughts. Moving fast and breaking things is no longer a sustainable option, if it ever was. Maybe in the beginning, it was mostly about a technological process of rolling out the software, getting, you know, kind of getting uh, uh, everyone to use it, and then basically um, saying, well, we're here and we're, we're going to stay. But you know, this was maybe in 2016-17. These days, it is no longer a sustainable option. And after an initial rollout, companies, platform companies, uh, have to find other ways to embed themselves in the city. So platform companies seek to become institutionally embedded as well. And they do so by engaging in boundary work, not just testing the boundary, boundaries of what's allowable, uh, what's legal, but also doing everything in their power to expand the boundaries of their platform and to become more and more embedded uh, um, and, and kind of spread out their tentacles, much like Facebook or Google spreads out its tentacles over the web and there you see a platformization of the web. Platformization of cities, of urban life, is very much not just a technical, but also an institutional and social process. And finally, so then we would say platform urbanism, um, and this kind of, you know, the wager for this panel, perhaps we can talk about this. Platform urbanism is a path-dependent, incremental, highly political process of negotiation and experimentation. We see a lot of antagonism, especially in the courts, some protests, but we also do see a lot of partnerships and a lot of new um, connections being um, developed, which, again, benefit certain groups of people while actually hurting uh, the future of of, of, you know, and, the few, and hurting also the future city um, as it is experienced by other uh, residents. So I'd like to end, end here and I'll stop. Thank you, Niels, for that incredibly fascinating insight actually into the, into the context in Amsterdam or situation in Amsterdam. And I think that's a really important thing to take away here is that context is important when we're talking about platform cities and smart, smart cities. Um, because it does sort of evolve in these ways that are, you know, aren't uniform and pushing back on that sort of normative uh, narrative that Niels identified there. So um, to see how this is actually playing out in practice as well um, and how it's playing out in practice here in uh, Australia and New South Wales, I'll hand over to Rory, who's our next presenter. So first of all, thanks for having me. I feel that I'm quite fortunate to be in such esteemed uh, company. Um, it's actually my first time at the University of Sydney, believe it or, or not, um, even though I've been in Sydney for quite a while. Um, I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay my respects to elders past and present of the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation. Um, all right, so look, I I'm probably going to take a little bit of a different tack. Um, I do uh, stand here representing New South Wales government, so I probably need to, to kind of speak within uh, a certain swim lane. But uh, I did want to uh, help you understand how we are thinking uh, about smart cities, about smart places, and what indeed might be our approach to, to thinking about the platform uh, in terms of how that all works together. Um, and when I was going through what would be interesting to talk about, I do actually think there is still a question potentially that needs to be asked in terms of, you know, why do we need smart places fundamentally? Like, are, um, are places not good enough already? You know, do we not have, a, have good enough design? Is there something around the planning and the implementation? Or is there more? And, and what role should technology play? Which is the space that we think about uh, quite a lot, um, so the smart tech in infrastructure. Um, and look, the, the answer is a resounding yes. I think there are uh, huge threads or, or, or themes that we really fundamentally need to tackle as society. There's obviously a, a big piece around um, uh, equality and inclusion. Um, and you don't need to look too far or even look uh, too far back to see through COVID that there was fundamentally those who had and those that did not have. And we, we saw real challenges around exclusion when we were all being locked up. And uh, there were some, uh, I remember seeing this picture of someone trying to do uh, teaching a school online and they were sitting um, on a stool in the middle of the field because it was the only place that they could actually get digital connectivity to be able to deliver the class. Or terrible stories where uh, Wi-Fi was being turned off in, in parks, which was a community service and, and to stop people congregating. So we really got to think about that and we know this from things like the Australian Digital Inclusion Index that there's a disparity between 
between our regional and metropolitan areas, but even within our metropolitan areas, there's disparity as you essentially go out, out west, um, and we need to think about ways to sort of challenge that. I think the, the next big thing is obviously about a sustainable and resilient future, um, and, I, and that cannot be solved unless uh, we have the technology and data and analytics uh, in place uh, to do that, and, and just to give you an example, like Western Sydney, I think's forecast is going to start to have 50 degree days right in the future. So, uh, like, y yes, we need to think about sort of different materials, but we also need to think about how do we use scarce resources to get the best green, the green infrastructure, right? So, but that needs water. So, how do you minimise your water usage? Uh, that's analytics, it's data, it's information. Um, it's about smart. And the final bit is um, a productive economy. Uh, if you're interested in the Productivity Commission released its draft report on, on use of digital data, and they basically said, uh, there's lots of information about your Iran, but we're not using it very well uh, at this point in time. And, and that's probably a theme I'll pick up later, and I think that speaks to the challenge, Ron. What is the platform for us to be able to kind of do this appropriately? Um, so the next thing, you know, if, if we do need smart places, what makes a place smart? <laughs> In my mind, actually, it can be quite simple. Um, and we sometimes sort of... Uh, overcomplicated a little bit, but in essence, it does come down to we got to get data about a place, right? So you're going to need some sensors, you're going to need cameras. It's going to be existing information. There's lots of stuff that's locked up in in 2D um, and, and all systems, but we need to liberate the information. We need to be able to house and protect it. Uh, obviously, some of that information uh, has associated privacy and uh, concerns, but we need to make sure it's cyber secure, and then we need to analyze it. And I think I think that's the big challenge that we have right now in terms of both the analyzing and sharing. Um, if you wander down any street, you're going to see lots of tech out there already, but it's just for one particular use, and the people generating the information from that tech, they're certainly not sharing the data, and that seems to be a bit of a waste. We don't want to have a future where we're having to sort of multiply the amount of technology in a place um, to get the information. A lot of it might be already there. Um, and then once we've done that, we actually need to use it. Um, so we're all for data-driven driven, decision-making. Um, and, I, and I think that we kind of actually need to leap into it. The reality is the ability to use advanced data uh, analysis, such as machine learning and AI, is going to get democratized, right? I, I was at Google uh, last week, and I was having a look at effectively self-serve uh, AI analysis, which is sort of kind of quite scary. So imagine where that goes in sort of three to five years' time, but we, we need to be ready for it. If that's what takes place, that's what we need to uh, make a place smart, what does it look like? Um, do you know what? Smart places should just look like the places today. <laughs> um, technology needs to be built in, and it's about delivering better outcomes for that place, whether your business, where your community, uh, a user passing through, it, it kind of doesn't really matter. And um, I, I could go on a bit more in this slide, but the key message is smart places are, are just places. Places are for people, but we've got to plan it in. And that brings me to my final point for sort of what is government doing about it and, and you know, why am I speaking essentially at something about platform um, and platform urbanism. So a lot of my thinking ultimately comes down to not going, I want to, uh, I'm not looking to enrich technology companies. Um, I'm not looking to slow down innovation. Um, what I am actually looking for is that we take advantage of this, but we take advantage of it at scale. And right now we see lots of great initiatives but we don't see anything that's growing. We don't see it replicating. There's no consistency. City of Sydney could be doing something great, but North Sydney maybe not, and so on and so forth. So um, we think state government actually has a role to essentially have the platform to allow smart places to go from seed to scale. And that platform would have a number of things. Um, it's going to be about sort of obviously uh, policy, maybe a small p policy, artifacts, context, guidance, toolkits, those things, best learning, practice. Um, it's about getting the word out as well, showcasing uh, what can be done, helping local government see and give them trust that they can uh, take a successful initiative and then make it their own. They don't need to go through the, the hard work. But there's also challenges on just the, the governance model, like how do I, how do I adopt it? 
quickly and, and easily. And, and so those are some of the things that, that, that we're thinking about government. Yes, there needs to be a bit more money uh, come in, but in the end, the, the benefits of Smart Place, and we looked at it, says that it pays for itself. So the question now is not, you know, can we do it? Does the tech work? That, that's ultimately solved. We're actually coming to a fundamental culture and people challenge, and we need the platform to enable that to become normalized, but ultimately going forward in a way that, that we as humans are comfortable with. So that's it for me. Thank you. Wonderful. Thanks, Rory, for demystifying, I think, some of the smart city uh, sort of ideas and how it rolls out in practice on the ground, because we can get very caught up in what it means intellectually, but not quite what that looks like in our everyday lives and, and the way that government perceives it. And so finally, we have uh, closing out our panel, our list of speakers today, um, Dr. Justine Humphrey. And Justine will be talking to us uh, around platforms and homelessness. So over to you, Justine. Thank you, and it's wonderful to see everyone here. Um, I also want to acknowledge the traditional landowners, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay respects to elders emerging past and future. So I'm going to be talking about what digital platforms do to public space and to people who inhabit public space in different ways. The first thing to consider, consider is that public space is contested it's a contested idea, and there are various meanings and uses of public space. Doreen Massey famously proposed that space has power geometries, and what she meant by that is that space is a political and social production, and that groups are subject to different treatment as a result. The gendered aspects of public space have long been subject to discussion and critique by feminist urban scholars and planners. People who are unstably housed have a different relationship to public space because of their need to inhabit shared zones for longer periods of time, to rest, to eat, to seek out services, and to charge their mobile phones. Homelessness, especially street homelessness, has historically been subject to high levels of policing. And urban objects, we can see a few of them here, are co-opted into enacting policies to remove, displace, and monitor rough sleepers. Digital technologies are also a key means through which different groups are policed in public space. As public space becomes increasingly mediated, and I think Sarah did a fantastic job of talking a little bit about how that happens and what are the devices that enable that, this has implications for the mobilities of these groups and the challenges and the opportunities of these spaces. So in research that I've conducted on digital access in smart urban environments, people who are homeless, but also young people, gig workers, groups displaced by war and conflict, have greater access barriers that in turn produce new imperatives of movement in search of phones, internet, and power. But digital mediation also changes space. Just as space becomes a resource and place for maintaining mobile connectivity, it also becomes augmented by data. Kitchen and Dodge call the invisible data zone code space. McKenzie referred to it as wirelessness. But we also have more recent concepts like platform urbanism, which help us get to this sort of understanding of the hybrid spatial formations that emerge in the mixing of coded software flows with physical space. So one of the ways that um, the space is being digitally transformed is by embedding sensors in street objects like kiosks, benches, light poles, streets. This data is then subject to automated and algorithmic processing to change some aspect or feature of the space. So this is the smart cities model. Rory helped us to understand that. And it can have great public benefits. And this is the big challenge, I guess, is to try and realize that benefit in terms of the new knowledge and how that knowledge is acted on. So for example, these in-link models on the right have outward-facing connectivity and information services that generate data through people's interaction with them, but they also have a number of inbuilt sensors which, when networked, perform to create a larger network that can then use data in particular ways. So, for example, counts of Wi-Fi-enabled mobile devices, whether you're registered for the service or not, can be used for location-aware advertising, as displayed on this large double-sided 
digital screen on the right. One of the outcomes of the code space generated by these objects is that it creates new possibilities for making groups visible in that space and being acted on in particular ways. And this is where I think we encounter some real challenges that we need to think about with the datafication of urban space. One technology introduced into the InLink kiosk in London provides an example of the way that digital platforms are used to predictively police communities. In late 2018, reports emerged of the use of InLinks um, for drug dealing activities in a small uh, South London borough called Tower Hamlets. This is a very ethnically diverse area. Local police identified that up to 20,000 calls were purportedly being made to known dealers from a small number of kiosks over a four-month period. A call-blocking algorithm was developed and rolled out in partnership with police and the company uh, manufacturing these devices to prevent calls being made to certain numbers using a call pattern recognition system based on indicators such as call frequency, how long calls lasted, and other intelligence gathered from authorities. This remote shaping of technology was carried out without community involvement, and its impact has never been scrutinised. Its long-term implications remain unknown, even though it continues to filter the space around it in quite specific ways. And a key question I want to ask you, and that the community may also have asked, is that there may have been other ways of addressing the root causes of these issues, which were a function of poverty. So this is a really important factor. And when we're thinking about code space, it's not just limited to street level. Different vertical and horizontal scales change how spaces are seen and sensed. So drones and robots are increasingly being used to monitor marginalised populations, including homeless encampments. This extensification of the exploitable code space, as the just data justice advocate Taylor has cautioned, carries with it the dual risk of rendering certain groups invisible and misinterpreting what is visible. And this relates to the question that I want to end on. Do digital platforms cause homelessness? So, so far we've talked about policing, We've talked about the potential benefits of digital platforms in urban space. Short-letting platforms like Airbnb reshape space in a variety of ways to, and quite distinct ways to smart and um, street technologies. Platforms such as these disrupt the spatiality of housing access and internalise access to housing only to those who can be exploited for short-term profit. The result of this is reduced options for longer-term rentals, increased prices for remaining rentals, and the shifting of longer-term rentals further away from the city. So while digital platforms are not the only cause of homelessness, they contribute to the conditions of disadvantage that lead to homelessness, and they may prevent people from escaping it. So the flip side of the hypervisibility that comes from exploitable code space is the invisibility of certain groups and their exclusion from that space entirely. If you're interested in reading more about this, <laughs> I have a book coming out later this year uh, on the research that I've been carrying out for the last decade on homelessness and mobile communication and the internet. So uh, please feel free to get in touch if you're interested. Thank you very much. Thank you, Justine, and I think we'll all be um, keen to have a look at that book. But really pointing out there the sort of uneven experience of the platform city, I think, dependent on exactly who you are. And referring to those, uh, I guess, those power relations that we've seen across many of the presentations today and in, in how that affects what the smart city or platform city is to us. So I'd now like to call all of our speakers up onto the... Uh, podium, I guess, with the chairs there for a discussion, except for you, Neil, so you can zoom in. Um, and we'll open up for some Q&A. First of all, one of the questions, which is quite a broad one, but in these, all of these presentations today, and indeed in the brief of the session, we hear a lot about smart cities and also platform urbanism. So what is the difference between smart cities and platform urbanism, if, if there is one, if there is one, or are they sort of an interchangeable kind of concept. Sarah, yes. I'm happy to answer yeah. that one, but I'm sure everyone has views. 
I, I, I guess I've seen the, the rise of the smart city concept the last couple of decades um, as being one that's very much a deliberate strategy on behalf of um, a combination of government and business to kind of operate the city, whether it's originally it was from a kind of centralised perspective, but nevertheless it's very much linked to urban-wide strategy. Whereas I, I personally see um, platform urbanism as much more about um, the, the range of different activities of a whole range of different groups that are all kind of co-creating and, um, you know, creating a city, but through their entanglements and relationships to platforms, whether that's um, business groups, apps, um, platform companies specifically, but also users and, of course, um, governments who are looking to regulate them. So that's, that's a perspective, I guess, that I have. Yeah, I don't have that much to add to, to that really great answer, I guess, or that interpretation. Um, I, I just maybe say that, yeah, whereas smart city discourse and the actual practices around smart cities focus most more on, on you know, technological infrastructures, uh, data-fied technological infrastructures, I would I'd associate platform urbanism also more with another way to accomplish the same goal. And the goal of both are frictionlessness uh, and optimization. So optimizing all kinds of processes, uh, making maybe also more cost effective in that way. Uh, and, and yeah, just making for smooth and frictionless uh, uh, transactions that can always be tracked. Uh, I think the, the platforms, the way platforms approach this is mostly through market making. Uh, uh, rather than kind of, and, and then also indeed more uh, bottom-up, if you will, uh, and, and dispersed and distributed forms of of, uh, of of market making. Mind you, of course, with the platform still being the the, the market and, and data governor, uh, um, so it's very not much distributed in that sense or decentralized. But it definitely has a different kind of uh, approach to 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 deal or to tackle the same um, objective. That again, both private and public uh, organizations are very interested in how to manage a city. How to make, how to how to see it, how to how to govern it, and, and again, frictionless and optimizations. I think what ties both together. Yeah, look, I think they're both really good uh, explanations of what those differences are. In terms of what they have in common, I think what's what they what they have in common is that they are both based on a data extractive model, so they operate within the data economy, and it's about different ways that data is exploited and the kind of value that can come from, from that data and the management of that data. And I think that the smart cities model is partly because of its historical legacy and partly because of the kinds of public-private partnerships that are often involved in their implementation, their, their conceptualization, implementation, often have a larger scale in terms of thinking about um, city-wide management of services uh, and how that data might say something about the city um, for the purposes of planning, whereas platforms can often be very specific and very narrow and uh, operate... I was about to use the word disrupt, but I don't think I will... Um, <laughs> operate to reshape a particular, an existing service within a city without necessarily um, impacting on the, the larger um, urban planning paradigm, but at the same time negating the fact that there is always going to be an impact on the mm. urban environment and the urban paradigm. That's a really great answer. I just wanted to add. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, I, I actually don't, um, per se, uh, I, I think we're trying to have a very wide view of what smart cities or smart places uh, mean. Um, and, and I think the, the reality is that, that we've seen uh, lots of things that are not successful. Yeah. And um, we do need to learn lessons uh, from that. Um, what, what I would say, though, is that nothing, it's, this is not, the, the hard bit is going to come when we think about how do we organize ourselves and create partnerships that are both uh, um, across government, um, vertically and horizontally. So if you think about the three layers of government in Australia, but then also with the, with the private sector and, and, and with, the, with, with citizens and with businesses as well. Um, and, and that's where I, I think the, the two things kind of come together. Um, I certainly don't view smart cities as, you know, 
smart lighting and smart bins and, and so forth, and people get excited about that. Um, th th that's not what it's about. Um, I mentioned about understanding the place, and that's where I think the, the sort of platform urbanism and the smart places that we're trying to drive to uh, really start to come together. Hi, thank you very much, everyone. Um, I have a, many questions, but I will try to <laughs> summarize in just a couple questions to Niels and one question in general to the panel. I was curious what happened with the drivers, with the workers of the delivery platforms in the post-pandemic thing, when they be, when it become a more, when the platform became more institutionalized, what happened to them? Do they just went away? Do they went into more, is there evidence of alternative? Maybe they have created black markets or more informal settings using platforms? I have that question because it's like, it's not that they went away. And uh, I'm, I was curious about the, that element of the embeddedness of institutions and how platforms are becoming institutionalized and are, they are relating with the city. Because I, I'm questioning, where does that leave more decentralized forms or more open forms? Or there, There's been a lot of discussion on platform cooperatives. Where is that? Or are platforms becoming, like any public service, a natural monopoly? Or a duopoly? Is that, is that what's happening? And I, I, I think that's a, that's a question for the panel. What do you see, the, what is the space for more open, cooperative, these dialogues of platforms, even within a smart places, constructions in cities? What's the space for the non-corporate platform? The platforms that are more, quote unquote, democratic. Th thanks for those questions. Uh, I'll, I'll focus first on the, on the first one and I'll give a, an idea for the second uh, question. Uh, um, where do the workers go? I mean, they haven't they haven't left. They're still just to be sure. They're still working for these uh, uh, you know, rapid delivery uh, companies. They're still working for platforms, uh, pla delivery platforms uh, like Uber Eats, etc. So I'm, I'm not this. These are still operating in the city of Amsterdam. They're they're having a, a lot of trouble uh, operating, but they're they still haven't left because they're constantly litigating. They're constantly thinking of new ways to stay open, as I also discussed. So it's not that. These workers are now all of a sudden out of a job. If they are out of, if they, you know, um, if they do lose their jobs, um, they will most likely uh, resort to other forms of low-wage service work, which you know uh, many of the uh, uh, delivery workers also have experience with beforehand. But then, because due to the pandemic, they lost these jobs, and also now even when these jobs are returning, because there's a very tight labor market, they still stick with these jobs at the moment because they pay more than the average you know, waiting job or restaurant job or other types of uh, jobs that mostly migrant men can, can get in the Netherlands, also considering you know, the kinds of uh, visas and, and permits they have. So um, th yeah, that, I guess that would be my short answer to the first question. They're still there, but otherwise they most likely will return to the types of sectors that they already worked in. Uh, they will be less visible. And I guess the neighbors of the, you know, the, the public nuisance uh, complaint, uh, those that filed the complaints, will be happy with that because we don't have to see them anymore. doesn't mean that they're not there. Platform urbanism also renders particular things visible that we don't maybe like to see. Mm -hmm. uh, the second question, um, yeah, I think that's when you have to really uh, uh, ask uh, and talk to people that work in the municipality, that work for city governments. Uh, and uh, of course, um, we, we have uh, Rory here. <laughs> so you Will probably uh, have a lot to say. Uh, for my part, I, I would say that at least speaking for Amsterdam, I'm from Amsterdam here, um, that, you know, we have a city uh, whose uh, uh, city government uh, um, has a CTO, a uh, chief technology officer, and who, which, you know, has departments that are very much involved, very centered on um, um, private venture capital-backed initiatives and, and have it being a startup incubator and have it being a startup city. And whenever we see the development of alternative uh, initiatives, uh, they just lack the uh, both the funding but also the institutional support oftentimes. So I would say that is where it happens to start you have to be 
creative about regulating which forms of regulation that don't only say no and that makes things impossible, like sending off those uh, um, uh, delivery companies to the edges of town, um, but also regulation and policy that actually is generative, that makes things possible for uh, for other uh, initiatives, such as uh, platform co-ops. Um, and then um, you can also see, uh, and then you can also have a look at what the city elsewhere, also in terms of capitalizing and, and, and resource and capacity building, can mean for these companies because alone platform co-ops won't um, won't make it. Yeah. Look. Um, so really quickly, I think there's. So let, let me talk about this. this. There's obviously policy and thinking that goes with it. So if you from the state government, we've got uh, a lot of stuff on data policy, open data, and there's a big drive to try and make as much available. But then that creates questions over kind of well, what is the value of that data in and of itself, and you know should we should it be assetized and uh, what role should government be taking in potentially monetizing it? Um, we already produce a lot of open data, and third parties are creating value from that data. So just take, for instance, the transport open data platform, but also if you know a little bit of the history about that, you know that there is sort of definitely being sort of friction um, from third parties being able to sort of drive innovation and kind of what, what does that mean? Uh, even within government themselves, we're, we're thinking cross-agency. Again, how do we make that available and share that? But I hope you appreciate that there's just an absolute ton of rules and regulation around information, as there should be, right? And as, as citizens would come to expect. So we do need to be very careful and respectful of that. And so when we do a data sharing agreement with two agencies, it's not necessarily just a straightforward thing. Um, and so my message would be, we're, we're sort of, these things need to be grappled with, but you will, you will see it, uh, you know, there are good green shoots happening, um, and I'm happy to talk about that with you at drinks. <laughs> Uh, can I just, I'll just yeah, want to say one a, thing in, yeah. in response to your answer. I do think that there are some really good examples around of um, public-oriented platforms, but we need to think a little bit laterally about them. Um, public libraries, parks, cooperative housing, there are lots of examples. I think that what we're talking about here is a failure of imagination of what a smart platform could be. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful sentiment to conclude with. Um, I, I certainly, in the way that I frame platform urbanism, it's not only that it's a, a kind of a corporate vision of what a platform um, is. I think we all need to be advocating for the kind of public value opportunities around platform design that do share that value more equally with their users and across society. Yeah, I'll finish on that note. Yeah. Thanks. And this lack, lack of imagination is indeed on the side of maybe of policymakers and, and you know, uh, public administration, but also academics. <laughs> I found myself uh, very uh, spoken to uh, a moment ago because, yeah, I, I think uh, me too. Can, I, I can also have more <laughs> better imagination about what constitutes a publicly oriented platform. That was a good point. That is an excellent place to end on, I think. We're at time, but I think what we can take away is perhaps we all need to be a little bit more creative in our approaches and, our, and the questions that we ask. Thanks for listening to this podcast series from the Festival of Urbanism. Make sure you check out all the panel discussions at cityroadpod.org. See you next time.